This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Can you believe this year's halfway over? So much has happened. Time flies. Sometimes you go, 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 and you look up and six months just flew by. I'm still hoping to get some traveling in this summer and see my family. So important. Even with everything going on, it's important to remember to slow down, take a minute to reflect and make adjustments for the rest of the year ahead. And if you need a little help with that, therapy is an excellent option. Personally, it helps to have an allotted hour a week where I can stop and think about myself, things I'm working on, issues that come up, and refocus on goals I'm working towards. You can work through anything, not just major traumas. Self-care is not selfish. If you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, and all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get started. Plus, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So take a moment for yourself. Visit betterhelp.com slash serial killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash serial killers. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1929, psychiatrist Dr. Menninger traveled to prison to meet with an infamous prisoner, Carl Panzram. Panzram was a self-confessed murderer, but Dr. Menninger wasn't scared. After all, Panzram was shackled and accompanied by five policemen. Menninger was so confident of his safety, he told Panzram that there was no way the murderer could harm him. But he was wrong. Panzram suddenly leapt forward in his chains, right at the doctor. Panzram growled, quote, Take these off of me for three minutes and I'll show you. I'll kill you right before their eyes, before they can stop me. You won't have time to be scared. End quote. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Serial Killers. Today we're going to continue our deep dive into the life of Carl Panzram, a serial killer who admitted to murdering 21 people, along with committing rape, arson, and burglary. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. 
Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Serial Killers on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Monday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network, or on our website, Parcast.com. Carl Panzram was a sadistic serial killer who claimed to kill 21 people in the 1910s and 1920s. 17 of the killings allegedly took place between 1920 and 1928 in the northeastern United States. He killed his victims by strangling, shooting, bludgeoning, whatever was easiest. He also admitted to committing multiple sexual assaults, burglaries, and incidents of arson. He served jail time in prisons across the United States under his own name and several aliases. While there are records of Panzram's burglaries and many jail sentences, the only evidence of his rapes and murders is his written confession. This confession was published in 1970 in the book Killer, A Journal of Murder, edited by Thomas E. Gaddis and James O. Long. In part one, we investigated Panzram's troubled childhood. As a boy, he was punished for drunkenness, theft, and threatening a preacher with a gun at school. During the early 1900s, he ran away from his family's Minnesota farm several times and served several years in Minnesota and Montana reform schools. Panzram briefly joined the military in 1906, despite being underage, but he was court-martialed and jailed after guards caught him stealing. This marked the beginning of a life in and out of prison. In part two, we'll explore the horrific crimes Panzram committed as an adult. We'll learn how he graduated from arson and theft to raping and murdering children. In 1912, 20-year-old Karl Panzram wreaked a path of destruction as he traveled on the Southern Pacific Railroad line from Yuma, Arizona to Fresno, California. He robbed and set fire to barns, chicken coops, and sheds. But this was the least of his crimes. The following is a graphic description of a sexual nature. Listener discretion is advised. While hitching rides on trains, Panzram robbed and raped many of the homeless people he encountered. Panzram said, quote, Whenever I met a homeless man who wasn't too rusty-looking, I would make him raise his hands and drop his pants. I rode them old and young, tall and short, white and black. It made no difference to me at all, except that they were human beings." End quote. Police arrested 20-year-old Panzram several times during his train travels in 1912, but he often found a way to talk his way out of it. In Fresno, California, Panzram received a jail sentence under the name Jeff Davis for 120 days for stealing a bicycle. Just a quick disclaimer before we dive into the psychology here. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. The uses of aliases by criminals has been studied by many psychologists. A study in the Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine determined in 2013 that criminals who use aliases are serial offenders and career criminals. 
In 2015, the International Journal of Emergency Mental Health and Human Resilience published a study stating that inmates who suffer from antisocial personality disorder are likely to use several aliases. Of course, doctors did not diagnose Panzram with that mental disorder, but it's an interesting correlation. It's unclear if the names Panzram chose to adopt meant something to him personally. His alias, Jeff Davis, comes from the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis. We don't know if Panzram's views specifically aligned with the Confederacy. Throughout his written confession, though, Panzram uses a lot of racist and derogatory language towards Native Americans and black people. Panzram also used the name Jefferson Baldwin after a famous American manufacturer of steam locomotives who Panzram admired. After all, Panzram traveled a lot by train. In 1912, he escaped from the Fresno prison after 30 days and returned to riding freight trains on the Southern Pacific Line, where he robbed and raped fellow drifters and railroad brakemen. He traveled through Sacramento and Seattle, eventually ending up in Oregon. Panzram continued his pattern of committing crimes, going to jail and escaping several more times in different states. From 1912 until 1915, authorities sent Panzram to prison three different times on various charges including highway robbery, assault, arson, burglary, and rape. He served time in Oregon under the name Jack Allen, in Idaho as Jeff Davis, and in Montana as Jefferson Rhodes. By 1915, 23-year-old Panzram had broad, muscled shoulders and a receding hairline. In Astoria, Oregon, he mostly hung around a place called the Louvre, which boasted a large collection of nude oil paintings, gambling tables, a brothel, and the world's longest bar, or so the place claimed. Panzram tried peddling a silver watch inside the Louvre, and Sheriff J.V. Burns arrested him. Some sources placed this arrest on June 1, 1915. The cops realized that the watch matched the description of a stolen item from the house of C.R. Higgins, the president of the Bank of Astoria. Burns took Panzram to the county jail, where Panzram gave his name as Jeff Baldwin. Burns and District Attorney C.W. Mullins considered Panzram to be a prime suspect in the robbery of Higgins' house. Around 1915, they made Panzram a plea deal. If he told them where the rest of the stolen items were, he wouldn't have to go to court, and he would be sentenced to working on the county road gang. Panzram accepted the deal and told Burns and Mullins where the rest of the items were. A blanket under the docks contained the loose bills, gold shirt studs, silverware, pairs of gloves, and a silver pepper shaker that were stolen from Higgins' house. Panzram pleaded guilty to the theft of the watch, and Mullins dismissed the charge on Panzram for the rest of the items as part of the deal. Judge E.V. Aiken, however, was a close friend of the Higgins family, and he decided to reject the plea deal. Eakin sentenced Panzram to seven years at Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. This switch by the judge was common in courts in the 1910s. A plea bargain between a defendant and a prosecutor is not binding until it's approved by a judge. In frustration, 23-year-old Panzram broke out of a cell, trashed the county jail, and set fire to, quote, everything that was loose or could be torn loose and would burn, end quote. 
He plugged the locks so no one could enter or exit the prison. Police eventually broke through the door and placed him back in his cell. According to Mullins, Pansram did this several times at the county jail in 1915. Mullins wrote the following in a report about Pansram and his actions to the warden of the Oregon State Penitentiary. Quote, This defendant was the source of more trouble while in jail here than any other prisoner we have had for many years. After he was sentenced, he broke various articles of furniture of the jail, started fires in the blankets and mattresses, and committed every act of depredation that he possibly could. End quote. Pansram said, quote, then I tried to play crazy, but I couldn't fool the doctors. I swore I would never do that seven years, end quote. He did not specify how exactly he behaved or which doctors were evaluating him and why. At the time, psychiatrists may not have known what exactly was going on with Pansram. By 1915, doctors had only recently moved beyond asylum treatment and developed psychotherapy techniques in private practices, such as Dr. Sigmund Freud's new psychoanalytic method. The first edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders would not be published for almost 40 more years. So in June 1915, Pansram was moved from the Astoria County Jail and arrived with his clean bill of health at Oregon State Penitentiary, an overcrowded prison known for its harsh treatment of inmates. The warden was a 51-year-old gruff sheriff named Harry Minto. The warden enforced silence in the jail. Talking or looking like it prompted beatings from guards. Inmates walked in lockstep with each other. This prison model was called the Auburn System, which originated in Auburn Correctional Facility in New York in the 1800s. Prisons enforced the system throughout the 19th century, aiming to rehabilitate inmates through industry, obedience, and silence. Inmates worked together in silence during the day and spent their nights in solitary confinement. Due to his behavior in the Astoria jail, Oregon State Penitentiary guards kept a close eye on Pansram. He received the last cell on the bottom of the B block. The next day, Pansram doused a guard with the contents of his chamber pot. The guards beat Pansram and handcuffed him inside a dark cell in the hole for 30 days. In a 2006 study published by the Washington University Journal of Law and Policy, psychiatrist Dr. Stuart Grassian found that solitary confinement can cause severe psychological harm to inmates, including individuals who did not have a history of mental illness. But even by 1915, authorities were aware of at least some of the effects of solitary confinement on inmates. In 1890, the U.S. Supreme Court case in Remedley stated the following, quote, A considerable number of the prisoners became violently insane. Others still committed suicide, while those who stood the ordeal better were not generally reformed and in most cases did not recover sufficient mental activity to be of any subsequent service to the community, end quote. When Oregon State authorities released 21-year-old Pansram to a cell block, he met 21-year-old Otto Hooker, an orphan with a crooked nose and a work assignment on the prison's farm work gang. Pansram described Hooker as, quote, a big, tough, half-simple Hoosier kid, and I steamed him up to escape, end quote. 
Dr. Elizabeth Yardley, director of the Center for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City, said that serial killers like Panzram tend to be skilled at manipulating other people. She said, quote, Serial killers tend to have a very good grasp of other people's emotions and are quick to pick up on any vulnerability or weakness in order to convince them into doing things they normally wouldn't, end quote. On the morning of September 27, 1915, Hooker evaded the guards and ran away from the farm, which was located a mile south of the prison. Prison warden Minto and the guards at Oregon State Penitentiary formed a search party to find Hooker. After an all-day search, Hooker encountered Minto at 11.30 p.m. and shot the warden in the head. Many sources considered this to be Panzram's first involvement in a murder, calling him either an accomplice or an accessory to the killing. After Harry Minto's death, his brother, John Minto, a former police chief, became the prison warden. Panzram didn't say if John Minto knew about his role in his brother's death. During John Minto's tenure, Panzram kept up his usual pattern. He tried to escape the prison, he set fire to the prison shops, and he got other inmates to rebel along with him. Around November 1916, 24-year-old Panzram befriended his cellmate Jim Curtis, and together, they planned to take down the careers of Minto and his deputy warden named Cooper. They schemed to help other inmates escape because the guards constantly watched Panzram. On November 11, 1916, two inmates escaped and Minto punished Panzram and Curtis for it. Panzram said, quote, They took their spite out on the rest of us, me and Curtis, they stripped naked and chained us up to a door and then turned the fire hose on us until we were black and blue and half blind, end quote. Oregon Governor Withycombe was furious about the fire hose punishment and launched an investigation in which he interviewed Panzram, Curtis, the guards, and Minto. Withycombe wrote in his report to the Board of Control, quote, why this direct and premeditated violation of my instruction and the law itself was indulged in, I am at a loss to understand. Granting even that the men were bad troublemakers, a prison administration which cannot handle the problems except by employing such antedated methods admits its own incompetence." End quote. John Minto turned in his resignation. Panzram was prepared to dislike the next prison warden, a 49-year-old former army captain named Charles A. Murphy. But Murphy had a different approach than the others. Panzram wrote, quote, I had never seen anything like what he was doing. There was no religion about him, and there was no brutality. When I first heard that, I thought he was crazy. That was wrong. Then I thought he was a fool. That was wrong, end quote. Murphy was a captain in the Spanish-American War and worked as a hospital engineer when he took the job to become prison warden. He abolished the whole and many of the other harsh punishments of Oregon State Penitentiary and established a new punishment called KP, which involved peeling potatoes in the kitchen. It earned him the nickname Spud Murphy. Clinical psychologist Dr. Joel DeVoskin said that punishment of disobedience only works in the short term to alter the behavior of inmates. In his research of prisons, he found that most inmates learned aggressive behaviors from other inmates acting similarly. 
Dr. Devoskin suggested that behavior modification techniques, such as positive or negative reinforcement, as well as social learning principles, could work to rehabilitate inmates. But it's not often used, even in modern prisons. That's what made Murphy's changes to the prison extraordinary. Murphy improved the food and increased the number of jobs for inmates. But by March 25, 1917, 25-year-old Panzram attempted to escape again. Instead of handing the inmate a harsh punishment, Murphy looked into Panzram's previous escapes and observed he was not learning from his harsh punishments. Murphy ordered extra food rations and several books and magazines for Panzram. It didn't work. Guards caught Panzram sawing his cell door hinges with a hacksaw. Murphy called a meeting with the inmate, and Panzram expected to receive a harsh punishment. But Murphy's plan of action shocked Panzram more so than any other punishment he had ever received. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now the story continues. 25-year-old Carl Panzram had spent much of his young life enduring harsh treatment from prison wardens. But in 1917, prison warden Charles Spud Murphy offered Panzram a surprising deal. If the inmate stopped his attempts to escape, then Murphy would let him go outside of the prison as long as he returned for dinner time. Panzram accepted the deal and called this, quote, the biggest surprise of my life, end quote. At first, Panzram intended to defy Murphy and never return to the prison, but Murphy's policies seemed to have a positive effect on Panzram. Murphy opened the gates for Panzram. He was free to roam, and then he returned. Panzram knew he could have left then and there, but he didn't. He was very confused. Panzram said, quote, I couldn't understand that I didn't try to escape at all. Spud Murphy was waiting for me. He asked me why I didn't beat it. I told him I didn't know, end quote. 25-year-old Panzram also asked the prison doctors to examine him to see if he was, quote, crazy or not. The doctors said he was sane. Panzram continued to obey Murphy and do as the warden said. Murphy gave Panzram a job in the prison. Panzram said, quote, I worked for him or I would never do anything right for any other wardens in other prisons, end quote. Murphy even got Panzram to play baseball and carry the American flag in the new prison band. 
25-year-old Panzram stopped trying to escape. At the time, Murphy's methods were very unorthodox and noticed by the outside world. According to Panzram, the state of Oregon was, quote, in an uproar. The papers all over the country had their eyes on Spud Murphy and everybody was watching his experiment with interest, end quote. Murphy was a self-admitted idealist, and he felt that the prison should do more to help the inmates reform their lives. Lawmen and guards respected Murphy for his record in the military. 25-year-old Panzram's good behavior was short-lived, though. In September 1917, he got drunk with a nurse from a nearby hospital in Salem. He stayed out beyond curfew and hopped on a freight train passing through. A week later, Panzram stole a bicycle in Shed, Oregon, and rode it to Tangent, a farming community. In Albany, Oregon, Panzram burglarized a home, stole a loaded pistol, and got into a gunfight with Chief Deputy Sheriff Joseph Frum. Panzram expressed shame for his actions and engaged in the gunfight because he did not want to face Murphy. Panzram said, quote, I felt I would rather die than be brought back to the prison to face Spud Murphy, end quote. When the pistol ran out of bullets, Frum arrested Panzram and loaded Panzram into the back seat of the police car. As Frum drove, Panzram grabbed Frum's gun and pulled the trigger. The gun did not fire. Panzram returned to Oregon State Penitentiary in chains. The incident embarrassed Murphy, and he gave Panzram a harsh punishment. From September 27th until September 30th, 1917, authorities placed 25-year-old Panzram in the jail's bullpen and hung him with his hands cuffed to the cell doors for eight hours each day. Panzram did not complain about this punishment. Meanwhile, the governor hired Charles Burns, a deputy warden, to work under Murphy and report back to him. The inmates began to rebel and attempt to escape again, but Panzram remained quiet in his cell. Panzram stood trial for the burglary and assault with intent to kill on December 3, 1917, and he wore irons in the courtroom at Murphy's request. Panzram pleaded not guilty to both charges in two separate jury trials, but both juries convicted him of the charges under the name Jefferson Baldwin. On December 6, 1917, the judge sentenced 25-year-old Panzram to eight years for the assault and two for the burglary, to be served consecutively. After the trial, Murphy wrote a letter to the judge discussing Panzram, who Murphy knew under the alias Jefferson Baldwin. Murphy wrote, quote, I hardly know what my future course will be concerning Baldwin. I know for certain I will never trust him again, but what steps to take towards reformation I do not know. I am inclined to think it is hopeless, end quote. Panzram stayed in a locked cell until April 1918, when he was given a job inside the kitchen. In May 1918, the prison guards stationed themselves by a window with cut bars in the basement, thinking that 26-year-old Panzram and the other inmates might attempt to escape through there. Instead, Panzram donned a white cook's uniform, used a tool to cut the bars to a window on the opposite side of the basement, and escaped before anyone noticed. In 1918, Panzram knew he was a wanted man under the names Jefferson Baldwin and Jeff Davis. 
So he took on the alias John O'Leary as he traveled the East Coast, after an inmate in the Oregon State Penitentiary he had known. Around 1919, Panzram worked on several ships that traveled to Peru, Panama, Chile, and Scotland. 27-year-old Panzram robbed the Scottish ship and served a short jail sentence in Barlini Prison in Glasgow. After making his way to London and Paris, Panzram joined another ship in Hamburg, Germany as a sailor, which brought him back to the United States in 1920. By the time he returned to New York, he did not have much money left. Around 1920, 28-year-old Panzram traveled to New Haven, Connecticut, where he burglarized a house. He stole $40,000 worth of jewelry, $3,000 in cash, a 45 Colt automatic gun, and Liberty Bonds, registered to W.H. Taft. Panzram claimed that he only realized that he was robbing former President William Howard Taft's home when he saw the bonds. Taft had been the Secretary of War who gave Panzram his first adult prison sentence in a court-martial. Using those funds, Panzram bought a yacht called the Aquista on September 21, 1920. He spent most of his time on the yacht alone, until he came up with a new plan. Panzram decided to hire sailors for his yacht to rape, rob, and kill. Panzram looked for sailors who were his size and who had money at the Siemens Church Institute in Manhattan. He hired them to work on his yacht and carry out his plan by City Island. Panzram said, quote, There we would wine and dine, and when they were drunk enough, they would go to bed. When they were asleep, I would get my 45 Colt Army Automatic. This I stole from Mr. Taft's home and blow their brains out, end quote. Panzram did not specify if he raped the men before or after he killed them. He admitted to murdering 10 men this way over the course of three weeks in 1920. 28-year-old Panzram threw the bodies overboard about a mile away. When Panzram's neighbors became suspicious, he hired two sailors and kept them alive on the boat, but planned to kill them eventually. Panzram took the yacht to Gravesend Bay, New York, where he robbed another boat. He planned on killing his two sailors, but Panzram's yacht became wrecked off the coast of Atlantic City, New Jersey, before he had the chance to do so. Panzram and the sailors survived and went their separate ways. It's not clear what Panzram did for the next few months, but around 1921, 29-year-old Panzram served six months in a Connecticut prison for burglary and authorities charged him with aggravated assault and inciting to riot during a Siemens union strike. He was released on bail and traveled to Norfolk, Virginia, where he got on a ship headed for Europe. However, Panzram ended up in Africa. Panzram continued traveling and eventually ended up in the port city Luanda, Angola, which was ruled by Portugal at the time. Around 1921, he got a job with the Sinclair Oil Company. Soon after, Panzram procured an 11- or 12-year-old girl for eight American dollars and implied he wanted to have sex with a virgin. It's not entirely clear why or how 29-year-old Panzram became interested in sex with children. Panzram was not pleased with the 12-year-old girl or an 8-year-old girl he received as a replacement. Instead, 29-year-old Panzram raped the young boy who was his table waiter, 
the boy told Pansram's boss at the oil company about the rape, and the boss fired Pansram. U.S. Consul Clark refused to help Pansram with the situation. Outside of the consul's office, Pansram noticed an 11 or 12-year-old boy wandering around. Pansram lured the young boy to a nearby gravel pit. Then he raped and killed him. Pansram did not specify how he killed the young boy, but did write the following about his death. Quote, his brains were coming out of his ears when I left him, and he will never be any deader. He is still there. End quote. Around 1921, 29-year-old Pansram arrived at Lobito Bay in Angola, where he hired six men to take him hunting on a canoe in the backwaters. Throughout Pansram's written confession, he referred to the men using derogatory racist language. During the hunt, the six men had their backs turned to him. Pansram fired a single shot into each man's back. As they lay wounded in the canoe, Pansram shot each man in the head. He said, quote, Then I threw them all overboard, and the crocodiles soon finished what I had left of them. End quote. Pansram expressed disappointment that a gun silencer he had bought did not work while he was committing the murders. He said that if the silencer had worked, then he would have, quote, gone into the murder business on a wholesale scale. My intentions were good because I am the man who goes around the world doing people good, end quote. After the murders aboard the canoe, Pansram stowed away on several American and European ships, until he made it back to New York City, where he obtained another boating license. On July 18, 1922, Pansram raped and killed a 12-year-old boy named Henry McMahon by beating him with a rock. According to the Bar Daily Times in Vermont, authorities found McMahon with his head crushed and his face mutilated. From 1922 to 1923, Pansram robbed a hospital in New Orleans and robbed boats at the New Haven Yacht Club in Connecticut. He spent some time working at a mill in Yonkers and met a teenager named George Wallason. In May 1923, Pansram stole a yacht in Providence, Rhode Island, and traveled to New York to pick up George. He apparently intended George to be an accomplice, but George became a victim too. Pansram painted the yacht, changed its name, and tried to sell it in Kingston, New York. A man expressed interest in purchasing the boat and went to see the yacht with Pansram. Pansram became suspicious of the man because the man did not purchase the yacht from him right away. While aboard the yacht, the man tried to rob Pansram. Pansram shot the man twice, killing him. Pansram threw the man and the gun overboard before sailing to Newburgh, New York, at this point, George told Pansram that he was scared and wanted to go home to Yonkers. Once George returned home, the boy told the police about Pansram's actions on the boat and what Pansram had done to him. Around 1923, police arrested 31-year-old Pansram in Nyack and brought him to a Yonkers jail. Pansram was charged with rape, burglary, robbery, and attempting to escape from the Yonkers jail. Pansram obtained a lawyer named D.J. Cashin. Pansram gave Cashin the yacht as payment for his release from prison and acquittal. But perhaps Cashin shouldn't have fought so hard to get Pansram acquitted. 
Just a few days after the trial, Panzram raped and killed a young boy in New Haven, Connecticut. Panzram said, quote, I tied his belt around his neck and strangled him, picked him up when he was dead and threw his body over some bushes, end quote. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to the story. In 1923, Karl Panzram was once again sentenced to prison, but not for any of his horrendous rapes or murders. Instead, a judge sentenced 31-year-old Panzram to serve five years at the Sing Sing Correctional Facility in Ossining, New York, for robbing a post office. Panzram's unfinished sentence from Oregon State Penitentiary also caught up with him. Authorities placed a hold on Panzram to make him available to serve the remaining 14 years on his sentence in Oregon after his sentence in Sing Sing. In October 1923, authorities transferred Panzram and a dozen other inmates to the infamous Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York. The prison was colloquially known as Dannemora, and in 1923 held inmates that were notably difficult or hard to handle. Guards knew Panzram's record of escapes, so they watched him very closely. But Panzram got into trouble once again. He tried to murder another inmate by hitting the back of his head with a 10-pound club. The inmate survived the blow, and Panzram had a few more months added to his sentence due to the assault. Six months into his sentence, 32-year-old Panzram tried to escape on July 25, 1924. During his escape attempt, Panzram claimed he fell 30 feet and broke both his ankles and legs, as well as fracturing his spine. New York Department of Correction Deputy Commissioner John R. Kane disputed this claim. Kane said that Panzram, quote, sustained some temporary injury to his feet and legs, nothing as spectacular as breaking both legs and rupturing himself, end quote. Panzram claimed he spent the next 14 months at Danamora suffering from a lot of pain. On August 7, 1925, 33-year-old Panzram had surgery and claimed that one of his testicles was removed without his knowledge. Kane, however, said that Panzram had requested its removal. During his time at Danamora, Panzram came up with detailed plans to plant bombs on trains, steal millions of dollars, and start a war between England and the United States. Panzram understood that his plan of action sounded grandiose, but he felt it was doable by him alone upon his release from Danamora. He said, quote, I also feel sure that it could have and would have done just exactly as I planned if circumstances and luck had not been against me, end quote. Panzram detailed this plan in his written confession, which Dr. Carl Menninger later evaluated. Dr. Menninger detailed his evaluation of Panzram's written confession in the book Man Against Himself, published in 1938. In the book, the psychiatrist called Panzram by the name John Smith and wrote that Panzram's destructive plan was, quote, by no means absurd in its conception, end quote. Dr. Menninger continued, writing, quote, I have never seen an individual whose destructive impulses were so accepted and acknowledged by his conscious ego, end quote. 
The conscious ego Dr. Menninger is referring to here is part of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung's shared belief that consciousness is what humans are aware of in society, as well as what is right and wrong. Around 1928, 36-year-old Panzram received release from Danamora. 18 days after his release, he committed around six to eight burglaries. Two days after that, he murdered a man in Baltimore by unknown means. Two days later, he committed two more burglaries. Dr. Menninger determined that Panzram had self-destructive tendencies, meaning that Panzram committed these crimes over and over again because he wanted to get caught. Dr. Menninger wrote the following in his book, quote, Some criminality is the result of overwhelming hate developed in childhood, which the individual can express only at the price of intimidation by his own conscious to such an extent that he unconsciously fails to carry through his aggressions and allows himself to be detected, captured, and punished, end quote. On August 10, 1928, police arrested Panzram for burglarizing a rooming house in Washington, D.C. Police described Panzram as a, quote, bear-like man with a limp, a heavy black mustache, and agate-hard eyes, end quote. For the first time since 1907, Panzram gave his own name upon arrest. Police booked Panzram in the Washington District Jail, where he met a prison guard named Henry Lesser, 25-year-old Lesser was a shy and friendly man. He quit school in the 10th grade and worked as a salesperson in a clothing store and a hospital attendant before becoming a prison guard. Panzram and Lesser's first conversation was short. Lesser asked when Panzram's court date was and, quote, what's your racket, end quote. Panzram responded, quote, how did you know? What I do is reform people, end quote. This intrigued Lesser. Due to his records, authorities brought 36-year-old Panzram down to the jail's basement, where they handcuffed him behind an iron beam, and they slipped a rope inside the cuffs to hang Panzram from the ceiling. They suspended Panzram above the floor, and he was barely able to tiptoe on the floor from his hanging position. A doctor checked on Panzram occasionally through the inmates 12 hours in the position. Panzram threatened to rape the doctor's assistant and insulted the officer who enforced the punishment. As a result, Panzram received another night suspended from the beam in the basement. The next morning, rumors began to spread around the prison that Panzram confessed to the murders of three young boys in Boston, New Haven, and Philadelphia. Panzram had previously made a similar confession to the detectives, but the police dismissed it. The detectives took his admission more seriously when Panzram delivered the same confession while undergoing torture. Today, this reasoning has been found to be inaccurate. Trinity College Dublin professor Shane O'Mara wrote in his book, Why Torture Doesn't Work, The Neuroscience of Interrogation, that torture harms the areas of the brain associated with memories, so torture often leads to victims making a false confession filled with untrue information. The timing of Panzram's confession could have been more to do with a desire to assert himself in the prison. According to criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley, serial killers tend to hold back important information as a demonstration of power. It gives them a, quote, warped sense of authority, according to Dr. Yardley. 
Sometime during fall 1928, Panzeram was caught loosening the window bars of his cell, and he was tortured as punishment. He returned to his cell half-conscious. In a show of empathy, Lesser offered Panzeram some pocket money. Panzeram realized Lesser was being sincere, and was moved to tears by the young guard's kindness. Panzeram told Lesser, quote, You are one of the few people I do not wish to harm. End quote. Panzram began to trust Lesser enough to discuss things that he didn't talk about with anyone else, such as his interest in the philosophies of Immanuel Kant, Arthur Schopenhauer, and Friedrich Nietzsche. It's unclear when Panzram's interest in philosophy began, but he was an avid reader of philosophy books during his time in prison. Panzram told Lesser that he shared Schopenhauer's pessimism about human life, and some of Kant's work frustrated him. Lesser said the following about Panzram, quote, We became friendly. A spirit of entente cordiale prevailed between us, end quote. At one point, Panzram asked Lesser, When are you going to ask me about my life? Lesser answered, Whenever you want to talk, I'll listen. According to Dr. Yardley, serial killers enjoy bragging and boasting about their crimes to other people, including law enforcement. This was possibly a way for Panzram to do just that, but it could have also been a way for Panzram to bond with Lesser. Panzram would write down the story of his life for Lesser, as long as the guard provided him with a pencil and paper. Panzram wrote about 20,000 words to tell his side of the story, and snuck a few pages each night to Lesser through the bars of his prison cell. Panzram's papers detailed his life, his crimes, and even his analysis of the criminal underworld. On November 11, 1928, 36-year-old Panzram's court date added another chapter to his life. The judge sentenced him to 25 years at Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Kansas. Lesser gave Panzram an extra package of cigarettes and tried to comfort his friend by talking about rumors of prison reform. On January 30, 1929, authorities transported 37-year-old Panzram to Leavenworth, accompanied by Lesser. He said the following about his time at Leavenworth, quote, My last term in prison was exactly the same as the first, and the results were the same in each case, end quote. Panzram and Lesser continued corresponding through letters, though most of Lesser's letters to Panzram were not preserved. Panzram settled in at Leavenworth. He mostly kept to himself. Authorities assigned him to work in the laundry room with guard Robert Warnke. Marty Rako, another inmate who worked in the laundry room, noticed Panzram's cold, calculating stare at Warnke. Panzram never detailed why he disliked Warnke, but Rako said that he sensed trouble. To purchase better food and cigarettes, Panzram began laundering extra handkerchiefs from the laundry room. Warnke found out and sent Panzram to solitary confinement. Psychiatrist Dr. Craig Haney told PBS's Frontline in 2013 that inmates in solitary confinement often panic, then develop depression and hopelessness. In his research, he said that many inmates do, quote, outrageous things in solitary confinement just to prove that they're still there. End quote. Some inmates become easily angered or irritated, which Dr. Haney has seen develop into rage. Most inmates who ended up in solitary were given new assignments once the punishment finished. Panzram hoped to be transferred, 
but he did not get his wish. He also formally applied for a transfer twice, and both Warnke and Deputy Warden Zerbst denied it both times. Panzerem returned to the laundry duty under the supervision of Warnke. In a June 15, 1929 letter to Lesser, 37-year-old Panzeram wrote, quote, I am still on my same job, and I like it less each day. I'm getting all set for a change. It won't be long now. End quote. On June 20, 1929, Panzram went to breakfast in the dining hall with the other inmates, then reported for work in the laundry room. He searched for a weapon. Meanwhile, Warnke and the other inmates reported for work in the laundry facility, and no one noticed that Panzram was not in his usual spot. Suddenly, Panzram murdered Warnke by striking him with a four-foot-long, ten-pound iron bar. In a letter sometime after the murder in 1929, Panzram wrote the following to Lesser, quote, Well, I got a change all right, but I had to kill my boss to get it. That makes either 21 or 22 that I have to my credit. You can put that in your little storybook, and if I keep living much longer, I may have some more to put more in my graveyard, end quote. Meanwhile, Lesser sent Panzram's written confession to professors, publishers, and psychiatrists. Around 1929, Lesser sent the pages to psychiatrist Dr. Menninger to interpret. Dr. Menninger met with Panzram in person at one point, an experience the doctor detailed in a 1968 letter to James Long. Dr. Menninger and Panzram met in the anteroom of a federal courtroom. Panzram was shackled and accompanied by five policemen. He was physically intimidating, and he spoke fiercely. Despite Panzram's many threats, Dr. Menninger told Panzram that he didn't think the inmate would hurt him. Panzram leapt forward as far as his chains would let him, startling both Dr. Menninger and the policemen. He said, quote, Take these off of me for three minutes, and I'll show you. I'll kill you right before their eyes before they can stop me. You won't have time to be scared." End quote. And that's when Panzram detailed to Dr. Menninger the many murders he had committed throughout his life. Dr. Menninger said that Panzram continued on with a, quote, diatribe about the incurable evilness of mankind, justifying complete extinction, including himself, end quote. Authorities placed 38-year-old Panzram in isolation until his April 15, 1930 trial for the murder. Lesser wanted to help him reform, but Panzram rejected the idea by saying, quote, I do not care to live any longer if I must live in prison. I would far rather die and go to hell if that's where people like me go after death, end quote. It's possible that solitary confinement may have made Panzram suicidal, Dr. Haney said that isolated inmates often turn to self-harm and attempting suicide to regain feeling any type of emotion. He said, quote, people begin actually to no longer have feelings and to be not sure whether they can have feelings. For some people, harming themselves is a way of creating a feeling, creating a reaction, feeling something intense and having control over that feeling in an environment where they don't have control over any other feelings or any other activities in which they can engage, end quote. Panzeram refused the offer of a judge-appointed attorney for the trial and pleaded not guilty, 
challenging the judge to find him guilty. The jury found Panzram guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to death by hanging, which would occur on September 5, 1930. The verdict pleased Panzram, but he was disappointed that he had to wait several months before the execution. Panzram wrote the following in a letter to Lesser, quote, I have never found the good fortune to find it in life, so I expect to find it in death. I hope so, and I believe so, end quote. In May 1930, the Kansas delegation of the Society for the Abolishment of Capital Punishment visited Panzram in prison after hearing about his upcoming execution. The group wanted to request that President Herbert Hoover change Panzram's sentence, and they asked Panzram to sign their petition. In a rage, Panzram shouted profanity at them and later wrote them a letter asking the delegation to stop their efforts. He wrote, quote, this you are doing without my consent and against my will. I choose to die here and now by being hanged by the neck until I am dead. End quote. In order to make sure the Society for the Abolishment of Capital Punishment did not interfere with this death sentence, Panzram wrote a letter to President Hoover on May 30, 1930. Panzram wrote the following, quote, I believe that I am within my constitutional rights when I refuse to accept a pardon or a commutation from the death penalty to a sentence of life imprisonment, either in a prison or an insane asylum. After writing both letters, Panzram decided to send them to Lesser instead in order to explain Panzram's logic for his decision. Fearing that his life might be spared, 38-year-old Panzram attempted suicide on June 20, 1930, on the anniversary of Warnke's death. Panzram cut a six-inch gash in his leg and ate a poisoned bowl of rotten beans. The night guard heard his retching and called for help, saving Panzram's life. Throughout 1930, Panzram and Lesser continued their correspondence. Panzram requested that Lesser subscribe him to several publications until his death, such as the Christian Science Monitor and Time. At the time, Lesser had been training to become a guard in the federal prison system, in which Panzram was serving time. He earned a placement at a federal penitentiary in Atlanta. Lesser wrote Panzram a letter on August 4, 1930, in which Lesser updated Panzram regarding which psychiatrists Lesser sent his written confession. Lesser also reiterated to Panzram that he would share any earnings with Panzram if a publisher purchased the manuscript. In response, Panzram wrote a curt and angry letter addressed to H.P. Lesser, Screw. During their friendship, this was the only time Panzram had called Lesser by this derogatory term for prison guard. In the undated letter, Panzram wrote that, quote, there's nothing more you can do for me, end quote and told Lesser to keep any money earned by his written confession. At around 6 a.m., September 5, 1930, Warden White led Panzram in a procession to the gallows. Guards fastened Panzram into a leather corset to prepare him for hanging. The hangman asked Panzram, quote, anything you want to say? End quote. Panzram responded, quote, yes, hurry it up, you Hoosier bastard. I could hang a dozen men while you are fooling around, end quote. Those were Panzram's final words. At 6.19 a.m., 
Carl Panzram died at the gallows at age 38, finally getting his wish, escaping the prison system once and for all. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Serial Killers, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Serial Killers is written by Mallory Cara and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.